where you find yourself in life, the book of Proverbs has application that you need to download and to put into your life. It's not enough to download an application if you're not going to use it. And when you read the book of Proverbs, you find applications that can help us with day-to-day decision-making, with choices, with priorities, with our vision, with our purpose, with our lifestyle. And all through the book of Proverbs, we have wisdom on a variety of subjects. Just about any subject that you could bring up, God could in fact say to us, I have an app for that. I have a way that you can download this and process this and become extremely familiar with this. And if you do, you will find great wisdom. This book is written by the wisest man that ever lived. One of the richest men in the world died this week, Steve Jobs. If you have an iPad, an iPod, an iPhone, a Nano, or anything that is a Mac-operated system, just raise your hand. All over this room, Steve Jobs has impacted our lives. And yet, in his last interview, days before he died, A paper came and interviewed him to find out what he wanted to say in the last days of his life. And this was the headline of the interview. Final wish to get to know his children before it's too late. $6.5 billion. But on his deathbed, What he realized he really needed to do was to get to know his children. What a sad testimony to a man that has touched every one of us. In fact, riding down the road, it was just on and on and on on talk radio about the impact of Steve Jobs, that he was the Henry Ford of this generation, that he was the, the Einstein or the Edison or whatever you wanted to call him, that he was all these things. But in the interview, he said this, I wasn't always there for them, referring to his kids. I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. And so he leaves behind a wife, Lauren, three kids, Eve, Aaron, and Reed, and a 33-year-old daughter, Lisa, that he would not even claim and said that he was infertile and could not have possibly had her and did not even embrace her as his daughter until she was six years of age. So what we have this week is a living witness, although he is dead, of a man that could have gotten anything he wanted, but he left his children short. His bank account did not balance with his children, nor with his wife. And although I am sure they will spend his money well, if not quickly, The reality is they will never show up at that grave and look down at it and say, thanks, Dad, for being the most incredible dad in the world. What a sad thing. Maybe that's why Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus said, 
No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Interesting. Jesus did not say you cannot serve God in sports, you cannot serve God in work. He said you cannot serve God in money. Why? Because money has so many characteristics of a God. It controls us, it dominates us. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. Now, you would expect the wisest man and also the richest man in the world, Solomon, to have something to say about money, about physical fitness, and about how we are to live. It is not a sin for somebody to be rich. It is not a sin for somebody to have money. It is sin if we don't appropriate it the way God wants us to, because God knows best how to give and how we are to give and receive. This past week, we gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away as a church. We gave $100,000 to Life Action Ministries for their One Cry initiative. We gave $100,000 to With Open Eyes, which will help totally equip with scooters and Bibles and training material, uh, 50 pastors in the Sudan. We gave $100,000 to the International Mission Board, and we gave support to two people out of this church who are serving in other areas. I want us to be known for our giving. I don't want us to be known for our taking. I want us to be known for our giving. Because the reality is, we can hoard and lose everything. And you see, when it comes to money, there is as much to learn as there is to earn. Interesting, I walked into my office this morning and Time Magazine had a special money issue. I always appreciate it when the world just cooperates with me and helps me when I'm planning my sermon series. And so I called Time and I said, listen, I need you to do the front cover. And they said, no problem, Cat. We'll be glad to get right on that. (laughs) The article is, what we spend, the age of volatility, the extremes of extreme couponing. This is interesting. While nail polish is the new lipstick, I don't even read that article. By the way, there's an article in here that says that there's a cap on happiness, and it's at $75,000. Some people say, I'd like to get to that cap. Some people say, I'm way beyond it, and I'm still not happy. Let let me just read you one little chart here. Uh, On personal finances, we are feeling the effects of the downturn. 40% use college or retirement savings to pay bills. 29% have borrowed money from family or friends to pay bills. 13% have been hungry because they cannot afford food. 70% have cut back on vacations or entertainment. 34% have been unemployed, not by personal choice. 27% have gone without health insurance. 7% have lost a home because they could not afford the rent or the mortgage. And two-thirds of Americans say that they would cut, take a pay cut to keep a job. In uh, 2011 now, 65% of Americans say they do not believe that their children will ever have the American dream. By the way, if you wanted me to really get into context, this is the chart for how we spend our money 
in our average salary. This is the breakdown. I'm not going to read it all to you. You can go online and, and get it out of that magazine for yourself. Now, here's what we need to talk about. There are 500 verses in the Bible on prayer. There are 2,300 verses in the Bible on money. God has something to say about how we spend our money. Now, we're all interested in money. Everybody's interested. It's a commodity that we need. I mean, we needed to buy gas. We needed to buy food. We needed to put a roof over our heads. We needed to put clothes on our backs. We all need money. That's, but it's how we view that need that is the key. Amen. You know, over the past couple of decades, it's gone from the price is right where you win a refrigerator to who wants to be a millionaire. Our standards have changed. You know, you, some of you are old enough to remember Queen for a Day. And Queen for a Day, you know, you got like a hairdryer and a blender. You know, now if it's not a million, why go? I mean, why even try to be on the show? And, and the ante keeps getting up, the jackpot, let's make a deal. All those shows are about trying to get something for really nothing. Now, here's what's interesting. One of the key ways that government is trying to say we can fund education, and by the way, it's really helped Georgia's education, hasn't it? The lottery has really helped Georgia's education. We're toward the tank of the bottom and the bottom of the tank and every other way you can word it. We're not making any headway because once people get hands on money, then they decide how they're going to spend it no matter what they tell you. That's why I never trust a politician because he's going to say whatever he wants to say to get elected. Amen. So we have the lottery. Lottery is going to solve all our problems. States debate. We got to start the lottery because the state next to us has the lottery and we're losing tourism dollars. By the way, here's the statistics as of this week. Your chance of hitting the big one in the lottery is 1 in 195, 249,054 million. Just to put that into perspective, you have a 1 in 700,000 chance of getting hit by a meteorite. <laughs> Let's see, meteorite lottery, better chance on the meteorite. You see, we've, we've bought the lie that money solves all our problems, and yet you read the tragic stories of people that have won the lottery. And by the way, the only thing winning the lottery does is it gives you relatives you didn't know you had. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, have you ever really pursued, you know, your family since you're adopted to find out who you're... I said, I'm afraid of who they might be. You know, they, 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 they may be the kind of people that when they show up at my door, I'd say, I don't believe we're related. You know, they may come from a family tree that doesn't have any branches. I'm not sure. You know, you're just trying to figure out. By the way, the average American loses $75 in, loses $75 in change every year. You just kind of lose it. We put it in our pocket. We lay it down. We leave it somewhere. It goes through the hole in our pocket. We lose $75 a year in change. That's the average American. And oh, on top of that, the average person in the world only makes $69 a year. In other words, we lose in change more than the average person in the world makes. Let's, let me just give you a couple of things here. First of all, Proverbs says money can easily be lost. 
Money can easily be lost. You see it in the Great Depression. You see it in Black Friday. You see it in the downturn in the economy. Secondly, it can increase stress. Ecclesiastes 5.12. It can increase stress. Ecclesiastes 5.13 says it can rob us of joy. It can rob us of joy. Of the 31 chapters in Proverbs, 24 have at least one verse and a reference to money. There are 68 verses in Proverbs that reference money. Proverbs chapter 30. So if you get in the book of Proverbs, we're going to be in Proverbs most of this message. The book of Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. This is the best counsel you can ever get on finances. Is out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. One of my heroes was Adrian Rogers, and Adrian said, God wants you to prosper, but not necessarily rich. Prosperity means that you live a life of general welfare where God meets your needs and you enjoy his blessings. Now, turn to Proverbs 13, 7. This is a fascinating verse. Boy, we were coming back from the mountains yesterday, and we made this trip to Augusta, and then we went to the mountains, and then we came back, and so... Uh, we, we went by the, the mall of Georgia, largest mall in Georgia. And I'm telling you what, at five minutes after 10, that parking lot was full. I looked out there and my first thought was, we are not in a recession. Because there were 300 cars outside of Macy's. And I know Macy's wasn't there saying, first one in gets everything free. <laughs> Proverbs 13, 7. There's one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. When I lived in South Carolina, there was a man who owned the major mills in Spartanburg. And nobody really knew who he was. I mean, this guy was worth millions of dollars. But I I finally met him one day. He had on a T-shirt and bib overalls and was driving a 25-year-old truck that looked like it had been pulled out of the junkyard. The richest man in town... It would have been deceptive to judge him by his external experience. Because just looking at the experience of his life externally, you'd say, that, that, that old boy, I need to reach in my pocket and give him some money so he can go get him a sandwich. He, he just looks pitiful. And yet sometimes people try to pretend that they have more than that. I know you've never met anybody like that. <laughs> they try to pretend that they have more than they really have. And that's why they're up to their ears in debt because they're trying to pretend. People are going to banks and they are frustrated. This is happening all across our country and it's happened for the last 10 years, and especially in major metropolitan areas. They're going to the banks and they're frustrated because they live in a $300,000 home, but they can't qualify for a $500,000 home. I mean, when is enough enough? You have a roof over your head, you have your health. You can go online and watch Fox Business or 
some of the other news and business channels, read blogs on financial wisdom, and at the end of the day, the only thing they'll tell you is how to figure out your net worth, your liquid assets, your retirement, your annuities, mutual funds, and investment strategies. But if they don't give you a Christian worldview, then you will not know what you have, why you have it, and what you're supposed to do with it. You and I need a Christian worldview. Now, here's what happens, and I know this. Listen, I, this is not my first rodeo, and I didn't fall off the last turnip truck to go through Worth County, all right? Sorry, Ray. <laughs> People think when a preacher preaches about money that he's trying to get it. Now, there may be some like that, but that's not what I'm doing. See, what, what I want to do with this is to help you understand that God is your source. Amen. And He is the resource that you need. Because you can have all the money in the world and not have God and miss everything. Or you can have no money and have God and have everything. You see, we have done so, such a poor job in the church of teaching stewardship. And how to be stewards of everything that God gives us. Not just our money, but our time and our talents, how to be stewards of our life. Because here's the deal. The majority of Christians owe more than they have to pay it. They spend more than they make. They use credit cards to buy groceries and gas and pay interest on basic items. And the average American spends, gives less than 1% of their income to a charitable or nonprofit organization. Some folks... Their most sensitive nerve in their body is the one that runs from their heart to their wallet. And they hate to get it out for anybody. And so I want to give you seven principles that you need to use in money. And this is whether you're a teenager or a senior adult. These are principles that are key and important. Number one, live within your means. Live within your means. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7. Proverbs 22 and verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. You see, credit cards have allowed us to buy what we don't need and to spend more than we should. Live within your means. Some folks think, if I can't buy happiness, I'll try credit cards. And so they get one and another one and another one and another one. I, I remember a couple that I counseled decades ago. And the guy was not letting his wife in on anything going on with their finances. And he was every credit card app that came in the mail, he was getting that credit card to pay off the previous credit card, which paid off the previous credit card. And he was just floating money. And at the end of the day, here were two people making a combined income of $50,000, and they were $125,000 in on credit card debt, paying 18% interest. They could have lived to 100 and never paid it off. Live within your means. Because we don't, we have home foreclosures and bankruptcies and repossessions. Now, here's what's amazing to me. As just a student of humanity, one of the things that's amazing to me is we have people, good God-fearing Americans, who are griping about Congress spending us into a hole who are doing the same exact thing in their personal finances. I mean, they're doing the same thing. 
Congress goes and they pass a bill, and it's a stimulus bill which doesn't stimulate anything, and they spend money, and they spend us into a hole. And then we go out and do the very same thing because we can't handle living within our means. Let me just give you some ideas on credit cards. Number one, only use them for budgeted items. Only use them for budgeted items. Don't use a credit card. to. Go, I mean, if you've got a budget for clothing, then that's fine. But don't go out and just get something because you've got a credit card. Jonathan Beasley, who used to be on our staff, he handled his credit cards this way. He'd go to the mall and see something. And if he really wanted it, he would go home and he had a block of ice and he had his credit cards inside that block of ice. And he would set it in his sink and if by the time that block of ice had melted, he still wanted it, he'd go get it. He said it took about three hours for the block of ice to melt and by that time I thought better of some of my decisions and so I didn't go get those things. Secondly, never buy something you can't pay for. Never buy something you can't pay for. Thirdly, pay them off every month. If you pay the minimum payment on your credit card, you will be paying it for 33 years. If you don't charge another dime to that credit card, it will take you 33 years to pay it off. Next, the first time you can't pay it off, cut up the card. Don't use it anymore. The best piece of advice I can give you is to take a crown financial class or a financial peace class and get yourself out of debt fast. Now, the Bible is not against debt. The Bible does not say you should never be in debt. There are people that think, it, you know, no debt. No, here's what the Bible's against. The Bible is take, against taking out debt with no intention to pay it back or no ability to pay it back. When we incur debt that we have no intention of paying back or no ability to pay it back, that's when debt is a sin. Number two, spend less than you earn. Proverbs 11, spend less than you earn. The average American is spending about 105 to 110 percent of their income a year. Spend less than you earn. Proverbs 11, 28, whoever Trust in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. In other words, live within some margins. Have margins, have barriers, have boundaries, borders in your life. The Greek sage said this, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Number three, save what you don't spend. Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. In other words, the more you make, the more you tend to spend. Ecclesiastes 5.13, there's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Now, here's, here's the difference. Savings is a reasonable amount. You need a reasonable amount. A financial planner will tell you how much you need in savings to be safe for a rainy day. By the way, it's raining today. <laughs> Hoarding is having more than you need and thinking every possible scenario. I, I've told you this story before, but there's a church in North Georgia who, 
had $125,000 in a savings account, and they kept it in there in case there was ever another Great Depression. And I'm thinking, if there's another Great Depression, your $125,000 is not going to do you any good. You might as well give it to missions or do something with it, build a youth building, do something now, because if there's a Great Depression, you're not going to have anything to do with it. Live within your means and save what you don't spend. Just because you have it doesn't mean you have to spend it. I, I remember when uh, our girls were growing up, they were little, and they were driving. I think we had a Dodge Caravan van at that time. And uh, Terry said to our girls, they were in the car, they, they, something they wanted. I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember the situation. And Terry said, we, we don't have the money for that. And one of them said, well, just go to the bank and get some. Well, we don't have the money for that. Well, just get that card out and stick it in that slot and just, just go get it. As if the bank says, oh, they're here. Let's just throw it away. Here, just take it. Save what you don't spend. John Rockefeller called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. Number four, invest what you save. That's what Joseph did in Genesis chapter 41 when he prepared the strategy for Egypt and for a coming famine so that they could survive the crisis. Invest what you save. Number five, giving should be non-negotiable. You see, if I get my decision right on giving, I'll make the other decisions with more wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, turn there if you would. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9. There's a principle and a promise. Proverbs 3 and verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This principle runs throughout Scripture. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, running over. Deuteronomy 8, 18. Moses wrote, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gave you the power to get wealth. Giving should be non-negotiable. Here's the principle that I want you to kind of get in your head. Everybody in this room could probably say, I have a need, I have a want, I have a desire. And if I had a little more, if I made a little more, if I got a little more, if I could squeeze out a little more, that would be good. The question you always have to ask yourself is this. If I'm not obedient with what God has already given me, why should God give me more if he knows I'm not going to be obedient? Make sense? If I'm not obedient with what God has already given me, why should God give me more if he knows I'm not going to be obedient with that? Some people say, well, if I made more money, I could tithe. The problem is you haven't learned to live off of what God's allowed you to have. I cannot tell you the percentage of Christians is staggering who say we can't afford to tithe, but they can afford a Georgia Bulldog football ticket. They can afford a boat. They can afford a vacation on the beach. What if God were to treat you the way you treat him? And what if God were to say, I can't afford to bless you anymore? 
and I can't afford to give you favor with your boss or with your company, or I can't afford to keep your business open. I'm going to take my hand of blessing off of you. You see, we use an argument with God we would never want God to reverse and use with us. Giving is non-negotiable. Number six, earn what you make. Earn what you make. By the way, 50% of people in America today are drawing some kind of money from the United States government. What we've done is we have made the incentive for living let the government pay for everything. And we've taken away two principles that are true to Scripture. Number one, money should come by hard work. Money should come by hard work. There are the references there, Proverbs 12, 11, 13, 11, 19, 4, and 28, 19. Money should come by hard work. It's not wrong to work hard. I, I, I don't, maybe this is just me. I'm sure it is. Do you ever get tired of walking into a restaurant and the, the waitress or the person behind the counter goes, yeah, what do you have? I'd have you to wake up and get my order right. <laughs> or you walk into a store and you're about to give them money you've earned by hard work. And they look like you've infringed on their nap. You know why customer service is lousy in most places? Because we've not taught children and young people and we've not acted under the principle of work hard. This country was founded by people who worked hard. They toiled and they labored and they sweated and they earned to provide something for their family so their family could have something better when they were gone. Today, we want something for nothing. The principle of hard work. If you see somebody not working hard, you just might as well look at them and say, God can't bless you because God blesses people who work hard. Secondly, the principle that money should be earned by honest work. Proverbs 22, 16, 28, 8, and 20, 10. Should be earned by honest work. And then finally, money isn't everything. But it does ensure that your kids and your grandkids stay in touch. As Warren Wiersbe says, where there's a will, there are relatives. <laughs> Turn to Proverbs 16, 16. Money isn't everything. Great verse. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to choose understanding rather than silver? There's an interesting book out called The Millionaire Next Door. And the authors of this book did a study on millionaires, and here's what they discovered. 50% have never spent more than $399 for a suit. These are millionaires. $140 for a pair of shoes or $235 for a watch. 
50% have never spent more than $50,000 on a vehicle, which is the price of a Chevrolet large SUV. Twice as many have a Sears charge card as a Neiman Marcus card. 25% have never spent more than $24 on a haircut, and nearly 50% buy all their household supplies at Costco, Sam's, or some other bulk store. Now, you know how they got to be millionaires? They were smart. They didn't just go buy something because it was there. They could. No millionaire has to go to Sam's to buy unless maybe he wants to stay a millionaire. You know, you don't have to have a Neiman markup card. <laughs> I, I buy clothes at the outlets. This is an outlet suit. Okay? I buy clothes at the outlets. I bought a sports coat a few months ago for $70. It was a $250 coat. If you wait, it'll go on sale. You say, by that time, it's out of style. Yeah, but I still have a coat. Amen. And I paid cash for it. Amen. So what we've got to learn is that money is not everything. Now, you ever heard somebody say something like that? Man, that guy's money. They look like money. They act like that guy's money. Maybe, maybe not. Money's not everything, and it's not the amount, it is the attitude. Ecclesiastes 5.13, here's a piece of, this is from the message, here's a piece of bad luck I've seen happen. A man hoards far more wealth than is good for him and then loses it all in a bad business deal. He fathered a child but hasn't a cent left to give him. He arrived naked from the womb of his mother and he'll leave in the same condition with nothing. I started with Steve Jobs, I want to close with J. Paul Getty, who when he was uh, when he died, he was worth $4 billion, which would easily be 10 to $12 billion today, if not more. This is what J. Paul Getty said in his autobiography. I've never been given to envy, save for the envy I feel toward those people who have the ability to make a marriage work and endure happily. It is an art I have never been able to master. My record is five marriages and five divorces. In short, five failures. The richest man in the world, one of the richest men in the world that died this week said, I wish I could just connect to my kids. J. Paul Getty of another generation said, I failed in relationships. They had money to buy everything except that which was important. Turn your attentions to the screen if you would.
Would you pray with me, please? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. There's a grave that marks the spot of J. Paul Getty and John D. Rockefeller, Steve Jobs. One day there'll be a grave with your name on it. They'll have a day that you were born and a day that you died and a dash in the middle. It is what you do and how you live and how you spend and how you invest and how you give in that dash that determines how you will be remembered. You see, the reality is If at the end of your life, your family can say, you're a rich man, you have a strong faith, children that love you, and a wife who adores you, then you've been one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Because you see, at the end of the day, it's not how many credit cards we have or how much money we have in the bank. At the end of the day, it's our love for God and our love for our family and our love for one another. And you can't buy that. I mean, the Beatles told us that. Can't buy me love. You can't buy love. You can't buy the love of God. You can't buy the love of your family. So really what it comes down to is when we die, all the toys go back in the box. And what's left is what we've given of ourselves to God, of ourselves to our wife, to our husband, to our friends, to our family, to our children. That's what matters. Everything else is going to go away. But it's that love that God has for us that said you don't have to spend your life on things that don't last. You can give your life to Christ today. You can give your heart to Him who bought you because the price was too high for you to pay it yourself. No matter how much you had, you could not save yourself. You could not buy your salvation. You couldn't earn your salvation. You couldn't merit your salvation. It's a free gift of God. So in just a moment when we stand and when they begin to sing, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to step out into these aisles and find one of these ministers at the end of the aisle and say to them, I need to trust Christ today as my personal Lord and Savior. I need to give my heart in my life to Jesus Christ today. It may be that right where you are or at this altar that you need to draw that circle around yourself and say, you know, I need to rethink. 
what I'm giving, what I'm spending, how I'm living, my money. I don't want the last statement of my life, I don't want the last interview to be, I'm trying to explain to my family why I wasn't there for them. Father, there are those that need to trust you today and there are those that need to trust you for salvation and others just for their life, their lifestyle, their finances and their resources. Across this room, there are a thousand different needs and you're the only one that can meet them all. So Father, I pray that you would draw those who are lost unto yourself and that you draw those of us who know you as personal Lord and Savior into a deeper relationship with you. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as they sing. You come right now. I'm laying down all of my idols and everything that I've held dear. For I